Thanks for pressing play. In 1610, Galileo published a paper describing his observations of the planets via a new telescope. His data implied that the Earth, along with all other planets, revolved around the sun, not the other way around, which threw conventional wisdom out the window. The Catholic Church put Galileo on trial for his insight and data. And it is said that his accusers even refused to look through his telescope to see what he saw. Galileo was found guilty of heresy. He spent the rest of his life nearly a decade under house arrest. Now, in 2021, Harvard's top astronomer, Professor Avi Loeb, just published a book called Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. And I'm here to tell you, I think this is a game changer for humanity. It sure was a game changer for me. If you've ever asked the question, are we alone? Professor Loeb's book is something you want to run, not walk, to start reading. And this might just be the podcast that you've been waiting for your whole life. Now, Avi holds a PhD in physics, which he earned at 24 from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He's the longest serving chair of Harvard's Department of Astronomy. He's the founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative, and his list of scientific and academic achievements are stunning. In 2012, Time Magazine selected Professor Loeb as one of the 25 most influential people in space. And in 2020, he was selected as one of the top 14 most inspiring Israelis of the last decade. Now, he believes that in 2017, the highly unusual object that passed by Earth for a visit called Oumuamua was likely alien. Oumuamua is the first object that we know of that originated outside of our solar system, came for a visit, and took off. Now, look. It is one thing when some conspiracy whack job with a YouTube channel with 15 subscribers says uh, he thinks we've been visited by aliens. It's a whole other thing when Professor Avi Loeb says it. To the best of my knowledge, this is the first time in history a scientist of Professor Loeb's quality and background has made anything like this kind of a claim. On this episode, we go deep into Avi's hypothesis. The attributes and characteristics that prove that Oumuamua was not a comet or an asteroid or anything else we've seen before, and why the good professor thinks it was likely alien. We discuss why he thinks science is a, quote, dialogue with nature, and why, at massive personal risk, he decided to come forward with his theory. We also have a fascinating discussion about a project he's working on now to build what he calls a light sail, technology that will allow us to explore outer space in ways we could never dream of before uh, and do things we've never seen before. And we get into a lot more. And you are listening to Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. We're brought to you by my good friends at Splunk, the leaders in data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. And my friends at NetSuite from Oracle are the world's number one cloud ERP system. Check out netsuite.com slash different today. Now, hey ho, let's go.
Well, shalom, professor. It's wonderful to meet you. Nice to speak with you. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. I have been uh, consuming your book upside and down ever since you were kind enough to send it to me. And it is very, very surprising on many, many dimensions. Um, and I want to thank you but for writing such an extraordinary piece of work. I appreciate your, your kind words. Now, I'm curious, since you came forward with your data mm -hmm. and your analysis of what happened in the fall of October 2017, mm -hmm. uh, yes, 2017? Yes. What's happened in your life? Well, the most significant event was... Uh, the death of both my parents. And, uh, you know, that uh, showed me how uh, we should appreciate every day we, we live through. Um, uh, and also condensed the, the way I behave to focus on the substance. Just like uh, basketball coaches tell their team members, uh, keep your eyes on the ball, not on the audience. And um, that's pretty much what I do. Uh, you know, when I married my wife, she asked me not to have any footprint on social media. And I accepted that, and I never regret that because I don't really care about how many likes I have on Twitter. And that uh, frees me in a way because, uh, you know, I follow my inner compass in the way that I proceed. And, and the passing of my parents, uh, you know, uh, they uh, convinced me that, uh, you know, frankly, I, I, I don't give a damn, just like uh, the sentence from uh, Gun with the Wind, you know, frankly, my dear, I, I don't really care. I, I just want to, uh, in the case of science, scientific work, I just care about the evidence and not uh, so much about what the public opinion is. Um, I thought that might be the sort of the line that you might take, having uh, consumed so much of your work over the last few weeks or so. I'm also curious, Professor, it seems like you have um, taken a tremendous amount of professional risk by coming forward the way you have and kind of uh, making the statements around the data that you've analyzed, that you've made, um, that we have now officially been visited. So I'm curious what your life has been like in terms of um, since you started to educate those of us in the public that this is what you think happened, what's happened to you? Well, the biggest change was um, allocating... Uh, uh, some of my time to communication with the public. And I don't regard the interaction with the media or the public as a way to promote my image or any other benefit. I see it more as a platform to um, explain how one should follow evidence and why I don't think that the parts of the scientific culture right now is uh, healthy. And um, the attention that I get uh, allows me to express my opinions. I, I don't see that as um, promoting anything else other than providing me the, with the opportunity to express that in, in much the same way as I was department chair, the chair of the astronomy department uh, at Harvard for nine years. That was the longest uh, term of service that in the history of the department. And I was, uh, my appointment was renewed twice. And the way I viewed that was as a service to to my environment, my community, more than the privilege or, or, or having a higher status, uh, because uh, I realized at some point that if I let others manage my environment, they don't always do the right thing. And if I want to promote the values that I care about, such as diversity and helping younger people and so forth, uh, I can do it better from a leadership position. So 
I view it more as an opportunity to promote my values. And the same is true about the communication with the public. That was my, the biggest change. Like, just to give you an example, uh, the book is about to come out uh, in a week. And uh, last week alone, I had of the order of, uh, I would say, 50 interviews about it. I have about a hundred more in the coming two weeks. I got uh, seven uh, communications from uh, filmmakers or producers in Hollywood that may be interested in using the book as a basis for a film. I told my literary agent that uh, if it ends up being a film, then I want Brad Pitt to play my role in it. And and also, you know, there the were um, a lot of um, uh, interactions with podcasters and, and, and the general public, and I got a lot of emails that I had to respond to. And altogether, you know, it takes away precious time from my creative work, the research, the science, the uh, commentaries that I write for Scientific American. But um, I see it as an important uh, way to promote the kind of science that I care about. I, I noticed that in your interaction with me. I mean, you responded immediately. You were kind enough to immediately send me the book, which I was amazed at. And so you struck me as somebody who cares very much about sharing this work with the world. Yeah. And, you know, I approach uh, my commitments um, with uh, sincerity. I mean, I, I never manipulate people. So uh, as a department chair that, you know, that at first uh, may look as a weakness because sometimes you have to explain something to people that is not necessarily a true reflection of reality. But it, turns out, it turned out to be a, a major source of strength because people believe me and follow me and uh, they cooperate with me. They never suspect that I'm going behind their back and doing something different. And uh, I adopt the same approach to science. And, you know, I can be wrong. There are instances where I have the wrong opinion, but uh, what you see is what you get. And therefore, I think that's the best approach in the sense that if you look at wars throughout human history, uh, conflicts and so forth, most of the time they stem from suspicion that the other side is doing something hidden from view. And if we avoid that, I think we can make progress much faster. Now, in the beginning of your wonderful book, you take us to your upbringing in Israel and living on the farm and so forth. And I've spent a lot of time in Israel. I used to work with roughly 15 to 1800 Israelis at a, a company called Mercury Interactive. And so I have very fond memories of Israel. They even made me an honorary Israeli <laughs> professor. And as I've been consuming your work and seeing some of the things around you, it strikes me that this attitude, this, this maybe it's more than an attitude, this true north that you have about you're going to do the work when, when the evidence leads to what it leads to, you're going to say what there is to say. There, there is an, a quality of that that I see in, in other Israelis. And so I guess my question is, and maybe this is why you put it at the beginning of your book, do you feel like your upbringing has something to do with uh, where you are at this moment in history? Definitely. Um, so uh, from my mother, I got the sense of uh, interest in deep philosophical questions and intellectual work as, as a great value in life, you know, tr getting pleasure out of trying to understand the world that I got from my mother. And I went to philosophy uh, lectures with her at a young age during my teenage years. Uh, from my father, I got exactly the sense that you're describing of, you know, being honest and doing the work 
as needed and, and trying to help the, the environment in a constructive way. And he was a, a person of very few words and uh, mainly focused on deeds. And, uh, you know, that's the one thing I can tell you and give you an example. Uh, when uh, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, gained momentum uh, about a few months ago, there were a lot of Zoom meetings at Harvard where people were advocating, you know, discussing this, discussing that. And many of the people that led those meetings, you know, just a few months earlier, when I tried to help people of color that work in astrophysics uh, directly, specifically individuals, uh, they were not very cooperative. And to me, that illustrates the fact that, you know, for some people, talking replaces action, which, you know, it gives them a good sense as if they really care about something. But in my mind, you know, growing up on a farm uh, with uh, the type of uh, experience that my father gave me, you know, actually doing the thing is much more valuable than participating in many Zoom meetings. So I would say just like a picture is worth a thousand words, an actual deed to help someone is worth a thousand Zoom meetings. Um, I should. I, <laughs> I love that. I should also say that uh, growing up on the farm, you know, taught me to pay respect to nature. You know, I really love nature. When the pandemic started, the Harvard campus was closed, uh, and so for the last uh, ten months or so, I I, I was at my home office, and uh, every morning at five a.m. Uh, I jog. Uh, and I go out to the local woods and uh, meet the birds, the ducks, and the rabbits over there. And I have a much better time than, you know, meeting people at the same time as I used to before the pandemic. Hmm. It's interesting. I I found it very charming, Professor, that uh, the very near of the beginning uh, of your book. Oh, this is this is our dog, Bean. He looks a lot like a cat, but he's actually a dog. <laughs> <laughs> he likes to hang out in the studio with me. Uh, I found it very charming how you sort of introduce yourself to us with sharing about your childhood. And I love the story about um, the one tree that fell and then the one tree whose branch you tried to repair and today right. has grown successfully and how you use that as a story for your children. And so how does this sort of deep connection to family and deep connection to nature sort of inform your thinking in the work that you do now? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of that branch, uh, of tree that I, you know, I still look at every day, uh, in the sense that uh, I was advised to take it down because uh, it was quite fragile and I put a, an insulation tape around it. And now it's the tallest branch in that tree. And to me, it's a metaphor about how much you can help fledgling scientists at the early stages when they are quite vulnerable to their environment. And, you know, I, I can imagine many steps along the way where I would not end up as a chair of the Harvard Astronomy Department, but rather go in a completely different direction if I were not given the opportunity that I was. And um, therefore, you know, I, I never feel very proud of myself because I know that circumstances allowed me to get to where I am and other people as talented as I am, maybe somewhere else, much less privileged. And I don't, uh, imagine being at Harvard or doing science as um, a status symbol. I don't think that science is an occupation of the elite. I think science is a way of life. And, um, you know, I would be as satisfied just, you know, working in the farm. And it's just that I try to explain anything I see. You know, if, if, if I notice, for example, 
uh, when I jog in the morning in the forest, I notice some branches of dead wood on the on the ground, and, and then I immediately calculate in my head, you know, how long do they survive the termites that are eating them, and then I can figure out you know, whether the number of such branches that I see relative to the number of trees makes sense, uh, given a certain rate by which uh, branches fall off and things like that, you know, so anything I see, I try to explain to myself and that applies even if there is, uh, you know, a, a clog in, in a pipe at home or any, any, any problem. And um, just to give an example, we had a problem with the sewer um, that was uh, clogged by by tree roots uh, at our basement. And when I worked on it with the plumber, it gave me immediately inspiration to think, what happens to matter that falls into a black hole? You know, I've never thought about the water in my home going somewhere. You know, I, I, I saw it going down the drain, but then it goes to a reservoir of, of the town, you know, and it has to leave the sewer. So once we had this flood, I realized, okay, it, it must go somewhere. So then I was thinking, what happens inside a black hole? Where does the matter that falls towards the singularity of a black hole at the center, does it collect there or does it go somewhere else? And, you know, that's one of the unsolved problems. And I wrote uh, a Scientific American article about it. And I would be really curious to know if the matter collects in a sort of very dense object near the center or maybe goes somewhere else. And we don't know the answer because we don't have a theory that unifies quantum mechanics and gravity. So just this just illustrates to you that Anything we do in life, you know, we can think of as scientists. Sci science is not really separate from, from our daily life. It's a way of appreciating and understanding the world. Science is not in conflict with religion either. You know, it's if you look at a watch and you just look at it from outside, you might not be as impressed as if you try to open it up and figure out how it works. And so all that science is doing is trying to explain how the, how the, these things work and and that can only increase your awe with respect to nature. And then you can put a layer of religion on it if you want, but it's not necessary. Well, it's interesting that we're here because one of the things I was fascinated to learn that I, I didn't know, uh, in your book, you share the story of what happened to Galileo. I believe it was in the 1600s. Am I remembering this correctly, Professor? Yes. yes. Um, would you mind sort of uh, opening up that story for me a little bit? Yeah, so um, Galileo realized, uh, recognized that uh, based on what he sees through his telescope, uh, looking at the satellites of Jupiter and other things, that uh, it's most likely that the Earth moves around the sun. And the philosophers at the time were quite certain that the sun moves around the Earth. And, you know, it started with uh, Aristotle, the, the ancient Greek uh, philosopher that, you know, for a thousand years, people believed his theory that the Earth is at the center of the universe. Now, this is understandable because when I looked at my daughters, you know, when they were infants, uh, they tended to think that the world centers on them. So it's very natural if you are exposed just to your environment to think that you are at the center of everything. Uh, but then when my daughters went out to the street, they realized there are other kids like them. They're not really at the center of the action. So by now we know that Galileo was right that indeed the earth moves around the sun. But back then, the philosophers refused to look through his telescope and put him in house arrest. And to me, that illustrates a very important point that, you know, you can suppress Galileo, you can ignore the evidence that he's arguing for, but reality doesn't care about what you do. 
uh, reality is whatever it is, even if you ignore it. So the earth continued to move around the sun. And that's what Galileo said, and yet it moves. Yes, and yet it moves. And uh, he spent, uh, remind me again, a tremendous amount of time persecuted by the Catholic Church, is that right? Yeah, afterwards, uh, yes. Now, it, this is not the only case. Uh, there is another example that I realized after writing the book. Uh, there is a student at Harvard that decided she wants uh, to pursue a, a PhD in the English department uh, based on the theme of my book already. So my book inspired the PhD. And she invited me to her thesis exam, the PhD exam. And at the exam, one of the examiners uh, asked her, uh, do you know why Giordano Bruno was burnt at the stake? And she said, well, he was an obnoxious uh, guy and uh, irritated a lot of people. So that's why they, they burned him, which is, of course, true that, that uh, people didn't like him. But but the professor corrected her and said, no, it was because Giordano Bruno argued that other stars are just like the sun and they may have a planet like the earth around them and there may be life on those planets. And the church found it offensive because if that life on other planets sinned, then they had to be saved by Christ. So you need copies of Christ for each planet, multiple copies of Christ, and that was unacceptable, so they burned the guy. So to me, that illustrates, I tried to inject a little a, a sense of science into the discussion, so I said, great, so now we have actually a scientific way of testing this theology, because we know that other stars are just like the sun, and we know that half of the sun-like stars have a planet of the size of the Earth around them, just at the right distance to have liquid water on the surface and the chemistry of life. So if we find life on those planets, we can then check if they sinned and then ask the, those forms of life whether they witnessed Christ. And if they say no, then we know that this theology is wrong. That seems like a very confronting conversation for some, I would imagine. <laughs> it's not confronting. I'm just, you know, this is what science is about, experimental tests of notions. Yes. And, uh, you know, in the Middle Ages, it was thought that the human body uh, carries some special qualities. It has a soul and you're not supposed to dissect it. That It has some magic, magical powers. And, you know, if scientists were to listen to that, we wouldn't have the health benefits we have right now. So. The idea of science is looking for evidence, examining uh, the subject of your inquiry without, without any hesitation. Yes. So maybe um, could you sort of, and this may be a completely unfair question, and if it is, by all means, let me know, but what's sort of the baseline level of understanding that you would like the average layman like myself to have about our solar system and the galaxy to frame this conversation about why you believe so strongly that we were visited? Well, first of all, um, a point of background. Um, as I mentioned before, there are billions of stars like the sun in the Milky Way galaxy alone, and then there are trillions of galaxies in the observable volume of the universe. Okay, so the numbers are huge. Sorry, Professor, could I just, I want to make sure we underscore something. There are trillions of galaxies. Yes. 
And our solar system lives in one of those galaxies. Which is called the Milky Way. And yes. th- th- there are about uh, 10 billion stars like the sun in the Milky Way. And then uh, we know that a sizable fraction of those stars that look like the sun, uh, of order a half, that's the best estimate, a half plus or minus a quarter, has a planet the size of the Earth in the habitable zone, in, in a, at a distance where liquid water may exist on the planet's surface and the chemistry of life could develop. So that tells you that not only uh, that we are not at the center of the universe, uh, also th- what we see in our backyard, in our neighborhood, a sun-earth system, is common. Nothing unusual about it. Clearly, the physical conditions that we encounter are not special. Okay. Now, out of a sense of modesty, I would argue, if you arrange for similar conditions, you get similar outcomes. That seems to be uh, disputed. So the idea that there are technological civilizations, intelligent civilizations like ours, is at the periphery of astronomy right now. There is not much funding to search for the signatures they may have. And young people that are showing interest in this subject are bullied or, you know, and when I suggested that Oumuamua, an object that visited the solar system and looked very peculiar, could have been an artifact, a technological uh, object that was produced by another civilization, I got a lot of pushback. Now, to me, it sounds like this assertion that we are not special, not unique, is the natural thing that the mainstream should accommodate, should uh, accept, because what could be more conservative than saying, if you repeat, if you roll the dice again and again, you you end up with the same outcome, you know, as as we have here, if you do it billions of times, it's a substantial fraction of all planets that are similar to the Earth that have a similar outcome. Now, it's, it's quite possible that the civilizations are dead by now, because it's not clear how long we would survive, but we could still search for the relics. And, you know, if they deposit the uh, space trash or, or, or some vehicles that they send into space, we can search for them. So to me, it sounds like a completely reasonable hypothesis that we can test by looking for evidence. But if you are not ready to discover new things, you will never find them. Uh, you can put blinders, just like in the days of Galileo, uh, not look through the telescope for the kind of things that we are talking about, and, and you will never find them. Uh, if there is no funding for such uh, studies, uh, if young people are not encouraged to enter and, and pursue sh- such studies, it's just like stepping on the grass and saying, look, the grass doesn't grow. So um, at the same time, I mean, my frustration stems from another fact that in theoretical physics, uh, but also in, in, in cosmology, there are concepts that are considered part of the mainstream that are far more speculative. So in, in theoretical physics, people talk about extra dimensions, string theory, uh, the multiverse. These are concepts that have no connection to experiments. We have no clue as to whether they are valid, worthy of investigation. And there are big communities of people, hundreds to thousands of physicists, working on them, doing intellectual gymnastics, uh, demonstrating that they are smart to each other, giving each other awards and honors and claiming that they carry the torch of physics forward when there is no evidence that these ideas are are valid, that they actually describe nature. 
And uh, to me, that's a betrayal of the tradition of physics where we, we are supposed to have a dialogue with nature, not a monologue. We're not supposed to tell nature what it is, but to listen through experiments to what nature is. And that is, you know, in the context of cosmology also, you know, we don't know what most of the matter is in the universe. And I'm actually surprised that, that we get paid because we are, we don't know what we are talking about. You know, we are talking about the universe expanding, having matter, but we, ha we never figured out what this matter is. It's called the dark matter, just as a label for our ignorance. And uh, we've been searching for decades now and, uh, wait, you know, put the, hundreds of millions of dollars into experiments that ended up not telling us uh, what the dark matter is. So, but nobody has a problem with that, of course, because science is work in progress and, you know, some of the experiments are risky and um, we don't always expect to get successful results. So that's perfectly fine. But how can one argue that search for technological signatures, which is in my mind, much less speculative, should not be funded? And this, so that's my complaint. And, 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 but the, the, the other part of my book is, of course, trying to explain why I think that this object that was the first object from interstellar space from outside the solar system called Oumuamua might have been a relic of a technological civilization. Yes. So maybe, uh, take me there. It's uh, so much of your book and it, it reads. It's incredible, you know, as a kid who grew up loving Star Trek, right? Uh, then reading your book, it reads like a novel as you get into the, the sort of peeling back the onion of all of the things that occurred and then the data around it and how you get to this conclusion. So um, take me to September and October of 2017. And now based on all of the research you've done, what you think happened. Right. So actually, it, it so happens that in July 2017, uh, we had a vacation in Maui, Hawaii with my family. And I was asked to give a lecture at the, the observatory on Mount Haleakala, where the Panstars telescope is. Uh, that was uh, three and a half months before Oumuamua was discovered. If Oumuamua was spot, would have been spotted back then, uh, it was on its path towards us then in principle, we could have sent a camera that would meet it halfway and take a photograph of it. But the Panstars telescope discovered Oumuamua on October 19th, 2017. And at first, of course, astronomers thought, you know, it, it was receding from us at that point. At first, astronomers thought uh, it's probably a comet because uh, comets are rocks covered with ice. As they get close to the sun, the ice warms up by absorbing sunlight and you end up with gas that uh, trails the object and they thought it's it's of this type because most of the objects in the outer in the periphery of the solar system where most of the volume is are comets there are rocks covered with ice is a comet part of a planet part of a moon or tell me exactly what a comet normally is so the way that planets are made is that you start at first with a disk of gas. That's why all the planets are occupying the same plane as they orbit the sun, for example, um, because they were made out of the material that was at first in a gas disk around. Now, the heavy elements like iron, for example, they sank to the center of that disk, to the mid plane, and then they made dust and the dust started coagulating 
collecting in bigger and bigger chunks and making bigger and bigger objects. And these were eventually called uh, planetesimals. Uh, these are the building blocks. You can think of it as a Lego that has building blocks and you can make bigger structures out of combining the Lego pieces. And so these planetesimals are the building blocks of the planets. And uh, as the planets were made, when these building blocks uh, stuck together and eventually made an object like the Earth uh, that was bound by its own self-gravity, there were some leftover pieces of the Lego that did not make it to a planet. And some of them were scattered into the outer parts of the solar system. And they are there now for us to witness as comets because th they were made within the disk of the solar system, but there are leftover pieces of the components that made planets. Okay. <laughs> I hate to interrupt you. And please excuse me for being silly, but it reminds me of my relationship with Ikea. The reason I don't put together anything with Ikea anymore is when I used to do it at the end of the project, there would be all kinds of pieces that I didn't use and the shelf did, didn't uh, hold up very well because of the extra pieces. I know the, exper but, the experience. I, I had it uh, as well. Um, and so comets are leftover pieces of the building blocks of planets that didn't get used for one yeah, reason or another. Exactly. But of course, in addition to the heavy elements, there was also hydrogen and helium. And so... Once a, a rocky core was made, uh, if it was made in the outer parts of the solar system, sometimes it accreted hydrogen and helium, and that gave uh, origin to the uh, giant planets, the gas giants like Jupiter, for example. And uh, so, anyway, that's uh, how planets are made, and we still have those building blocks floating in the outer solar system, and every now and then they, you know, they come close to the sun. And then uh, you see them as comets. And since they are loosely bound to the sun, if they reside in the outer parts of the solar system, you would expect that interstellar objects would most likely come from that reservoir um, because it's easy to tear them apart from their parent star by another star passing by. So another star can rip them apart and then they would fly into interstellar space. And so the, the immediate assumption was uh, the, the interstellar objects we will discover will be comets. And uh, the only problem is that Oumuamua, which was the first object discovered, did not have any cometary tail. So then people said, okay, so it's not a comet, it's an asteroid, meaning just rock without any ice on the, on the surface. And, and Professor, if I could, I just want to make sure, this is the first uh, known interplanetary piece of anything to to come near us, yes, interstellar, to come into our galaxy. Interstellar, interstellar. Excuse me, interstellar. Yes, it came from another star or somewhere outside the solar system. And the reason we know that the first fact that was known about this object is that it's moving too fast to be bound to the sun. It's just on a trajectory that allows it to escape from the pull, the gravitational pull of the sun. So does that mean what's propelling it forward is more powerful than the gravitational pull of the sun? Well, it's not, nothing is propelling it. It's just that it's relative speed. Relative, if, if, if a bullet moves too fast relative to the earth, or if, if a spacecraft moves too fast, it will never fall to the, you know, it will just escape. So the issue is how fast does an object move relative to the source of gravity? And in the case of the sun, if, this object was moving too fast to be bound to the sun. So even as it, 
moves away from the sun. The sun can never bind it gravitationally. It's moving too fast. And we had not seen that before, Professor. No. So all the objects we have seen before were bound to the sun. They were relics from the formation process of the solar system, like the planetesimals that we were talking about. And so this ability to escape the gravitational pull of the sun was a huge discovery here, yes? Yeah, it was the first time we saw an object from outside the solar system. And about a decade before that, I wrote a paper, the first paper that was trying to forecast how many such objects should be out there based on what we know about the solar system, assuming that the other planetary systems around other stars are similar, and uh, just doing a calculation of you know, the budget of how many objects there are and how many should be torn apart and in fl- you know floating in interstellar space. And we forecasted that pan stars, this observatory, will not find anything because there were just too little, too few of them uh, for pan stars to discover. So uh, the actual discovery of Oumuamua is by itself a puzzle. It means that there is an abundance of such objects that is much greater than would be expected from the rocks that occupy the solar system. At any event, putting that aside, this uh, object was peculiar because it exhibited an extra push of the type that you expect from a comet. So when a comet evaporates, there is the rocket effect where the gases move one way and they push the object in the opposite way, just like a jet plane that is throwing gas backwards and then propelling itself forward. But in this case, there was no cometary tail. So what? where did this push come from? I should say there was another object that was discovered in, sept- in September 2020, just a few months ago, that also exhibited an extra push. Uh, but this object was bound to the sun, was moving on an orbit similar to that of the Earth, uh, did not have a cometary tail. And when tracing it back in time, it was realized that it actually left the Earth in 1966. Apparently, there was a rocket booster that was part of a, a lunar lander, Surveyor 2 mission that uh, was kicked into space. And we discovered it with our telescopes, with the Panstars telescope. The same telescope discovered it. And the, the reason it exhibited this extra push is because it's thin, uh, the object, and reflected sunlight. So my proposal actually back uh, in 2018, after the Oumuamua anomaly was discovered that it exhibited the extra push, the proposal was that it's reflection of sunlight that propels it. And just as in the case of this object that I was mentioning uh, that was discovered in uh, September 2020, and in order for the sunlight to be effective and give you this extra push, uh, it, the object needs to be extremely thin, just like a sail on a boat. Uh, that is being pushed by wind, uh, you can imagine a light sail pushed by reflecting light, the sunlight. And uh, that would imply, since nature doesn't produce such sails, it would imply that it may have been produced by another civilization. We ourselves are developing that technology right now uh, as a means for space exploration because it offers the advantage of not carrying the fuel with the spacecraft. You just you can just shine uh, light on the space on the sail and propel it forward. Does that mean that space travel in the future might likely be, for lack of a better description, a sail ship, sailboat that sails on the the reflection of the sun? 
Is this how I should think about it? Or how should I think about it? Actually, yeah. Well, the sun is one source of light, but it depends really on the speed that you want to reach. Uh, so I'm actually leading um, a project called the Breakthrough uh, Starshot Initiative um, uh, that is funded by an entrepreneur from Silicon Valley, Yuri Milner. And the goal of that uh, project is to reach the nearest star within our lifetime, within a couple of decades. Uh, now, the nearest star is uh, a little more than four light years away. And in fact, uh, the results of the 2016 elections uh, will get there only next month because it takes four and a quarter years for light to travel that distance. So um, if we want to get there within 20 years, you need a spacecraft that moves at the fifth of the speed of light. And uh, the question is, how can you propel something to that speed? The, uh, and Yuri Milner uh, asked me, tasked me to come up with a technology that would do that. And the only one is that is able to do that is a light sail that is being pushed by a very powerful laser beam. And uh, that is the concept that we are trying to develop, where uh, the goal is to create a very powerful laser that is shining on a light sail and propelling it to a, f- uh, a fifth of the speed of light. And, and, and it's in principle feasible if, if the sail is very lightweight, if it weighs of order a gram. Um, and then uh, within with a hundred gigawatt uh, laser, you can in principle push it to a fifth of the speed of light within a few minutes, uh, and then it will go on a ballistic orbit towards the target. And that's one way by which we can send a camera to uh, the nearest star, Proxima Centauri, to check if the planet around it uh, has life on it. This is just an example of uh, a light sail. Uh, project. Uh, of course, the, the, there are light sails developed also to use the sunlight, but they reach speeds that are far le- uh, lower than uh, by, by about a factor of a thousand than uh, I was talking about. Fascinating. I, I want to make sure I understood what you said. You, you think this project that you're working on with Yuri, mm-hmm. you're going to be able to create a uh, laser-based light sail right. that will allow us to send a craft of some kind to the nearest sun in our lifetime. Yes, that's the that's the goal. Now, whether the technology works or not, that depends on the details, and that's you know where that's what we are fun, uh, working on right now. That the the three major components that that we are working on are the what we call the photon engine, the laser uh, focusing a, a beam of light to a small area because the sail is roughly the size of a person. We need to focus that across a large distance that is out to five times the distance to the moon when the launch ends. And and then uh, the second part is developing a a lightweight uh, sail that is made of uh, a strong enough material that reflects most of the light because if it absorbs a little bit of the laser light, it it could burn up. And then uh, the third component is the communication across those vast distances, uh, communication of an image. It's very easy to equip such a thing with the electronics you find on a cell phone so that it has a camera, a navigation device, communication device. But uh, the issue is really how to communicate an image taken four light years away and uh, collect the data here on Earth. Our friends at uh, AT&T Wireless have a hard time making sure my cell phone works here in Santa Cruz, California. So 
Yeah, I would imagine uh, picking the right carrier for this uh, communication is going to be a tough thing to do. <laughs> well, you know, just like with the Apollo mission, uh, there would be lots of benefits. If this technology is developed, there would be lots of benefits here on Earth as well. But I think the, the aspect that is most inspiring about that is the ambition of humans to reach very far and go beyond the solar system. And, you know, that's exciting. Uh, so when we announced the project in 2016, my wife brought the car, our car, uh, for an oil change. And the mechanic asked her, where is your husband? And she said, he's in New York City announcing this project, the uh, Starshot. And the mechanic said, wow, I cannot believe that. I'm following every detail of it. It's so inspiring. So, you know, in my mind, you know, since the uh, 1960s uh, and early 70s, uh, the public was not really inspired about space as it should. Uh, and, you know, I was uh, taking part in a debate just a couple of months ago organized by IBM and Bloomberg News about whether the space race is good for humanity. And all the other debaters were talking about the military threat. Uh, if there is a space race between the US and China. Um, and uh, that wasn't clear to me because, um, you know, we live on a two-dimensional surface, on the surface of Earth. And uh, all the military threats are associated with this surface. But space is about the third dimension, going far from Earth. And if we go to Mars or we go to another star, clearly that does not pose a military threat to anything on Earth. So, in fact, exploration of space is a unifying theme uh, that all nations can come together and participate in rather than worry about military threats. And moreover, the commercial sector, you know, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are interested in going to uh, Mars, for example. So uh, the disputes between nations are less relevant than the global economy in this context. Yes, and it strikes me that, and of course, I'm nowhere near learned on these things as you are, but after the initial um, landing on the moon and subsequent missions to Mars, there was an interesting thing that happened. You know, we just had uh, Stephen Kotler on, the author of this incredible new book called The Art of Impossible. And one of the things he talks about the, is the Bannister effect. After Roger Bannister ran the four-minute mile, then all these other people did it when people had said it was impossible for so long. And so to get back to the kind of 60s and 70s, with particularly what the U.S. and to some degree Russia was doing, it seemed like there was a Bannister effect across many different technologies that we thought, well, shit, if we can land on the moon, what else can we do? We learn things from those technologies. Right. Our minds became open, and all of a sudden, uh, the explosion and some of the innovation that we're enjoying today uh, took a big jump. At least that's how it seems to me, but I'm curious how it seems to you. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree, and I, I can give examples from other arenas. So, for example, uh, you know, along my career, I, I worked on many different uh, fields and and usually i work on something that is not yet recognized by the community so i started working on you know the first light in the universe how the first stars formed and when they formed and that was not a popular subject there were only a few people interested in that and by now it became mainstream and uh you know there are hundreds of people working on it and it's one of the objectives of the upcoming uh, james webb space telescope to discover the first galaxies the first star and um, I noticed the pattern when I worked on that, when I worked on imaging a black hole, which by now was achieved, accomplished, announced uh, 
last year uh, as part of uh, it, it was actually discovered within uh, the Black Hole Initiative uh, that we have at Harvard that I'm the founding director of. You know, I noticed a pattern where in the early days of a subject, uh, people have a lot of resistance and and you have to believe in what you're doing and uh, follow the evidence rather than worry about what other people say. And only then uh, when you persevere, a lot of people might join you ultimately and, and say, of course, that's natural. Another example is when I arrived to Harvard, they were trying to ha- hire to recruit uh, some of the best theoretical astrophysicists without much success. Harvard was not in good shape. And uh, I said already as a junior faculty, I I said to my colleagues around, you know, the corridor, I said, look, if we have a good taste and we believe in ourselves, we can build the best group in the world here. And they laughed at me. And one of them said, oh, Avi uh, repeats this mantra again and so forth. And after, you know, I became director of the Institute for Theory and Computation and then the chair of the astronomy department, I made, you know, I, I, it's now a reality. And they're not laughing anymore because we are doing better than most universities in the world. And to me, it illustrates the fact that, you know, many times, many things in life are self-fulfilling prophecies. If you tell yourself you're unable to do something or if you're not imaginative or you're not inspired by bold moves, then life would be boring. <laughs> yes, very much. So now if we could go back to Oumuamua for a moment. So it starts to exhibit the early data you're starting to see. It starts to exhibit behaviors and appear to have principles and dimensions that look very different than anything else. So, so first we know that it comes from outside our solar system. And then you start to see all these things that it's not a comet. It's not an asteroid. It doesn't fit sort of definitions of things that we understand. If you could walk me through some of those discoveries. Right. So I call these anomalies. So we discussed one of them, which was the fact that there was this extra push, uh, even though there was no cometary tail. Um, Another one was that as it was tumbling around, its brightness varied by a factor of 10. And, uh, you know, that's... uh, That implies an extreme geometry, and the most likely geometry that fit the data is that of a flat object rather than cigar shape. And then uh, it also came from a special frame of reference, which is uh, sort of the galactic parking lot. Uh, If you average the motion of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun, you get to the so-called local standard of rest. And this object was at rest in that frame. Only one in 500 stars are so much at rest. It's sort of like finding a car in a public parking lot and then not being able to identify uh, which house the car came from because it sits there. And uh, another way to think of it is like a buoy sitting on the surface of an ocean and the sun bumps into it uh, like a giant ship. Um, And then the relative speed that it has relative to the sun was just because of the motion of the sun relative to the local standard of rest. So that's another peculiar fact. And, you know, the question is, why is it sitting at rest in the local standard of rest? And uh, it's quite unusual, actually. Uh, and then uh, it had a reflectance that is at the high end of the objects that we often see. And, and um, altogether, if you if you imagine each of these properties being rare among the objects that we know about, you end up with 
a very small likelihood to find such an object. And this was the first one that we observed, so it must be common. So that, that was very puzzling to me. And um, there were two reactions from the mainstream of astronomy. Uh, well, first of all, I should say uh, there was a, a seminar at Harvard. And when we left the room together with a colleague that is a mainstream uh, astronomer that always thinks, you know, conventionally, he said, this object is so weird, I wish it never existed. So that, that to me was appalling because uh, as a scientist, you should always be happy about what nature gives you. But uh, the mainstream community, basically, there were some uh, b- bulk of people that basically said, okay, it's unusual. Uh, I don't really care about it. Business as usual. And then there were a few people that paid attention to the evidence and tried to explain it. So they tried to explain why why this object is being pushed uh, with an extra force, despite the fact that we don't see a cometary tail, for example. And uh, so one suggestion was that it's a dust bunny, collection of dust particles like you find at home, it's sort of a cloud of dust the size of a football field, spinning around every eight hours and um, being porous, uh, more rarefied, less dense than than air by a factor of a hundred. So, sort of a very diffuse cloud of dust. And uh, in my mind, such a thing is unlikely to survive the journey of millions of years through interstellar space. There was another suggestion that it may be a hydrogen iceberg, just frozen hydrogen. And then it, as it gets evaporated by sunlight, by absorbing sunlight, the hydrogen is transparent, so we can't see it. Uh, that's why we don't see a cometary tail. The problem with that is that the hydrogen iceberg, first of all, we haven't seen anything and we don't know how to make it. But the main problem is that um, it can be easily evaporated when it travels through interstellar space by uh, absorption of starlight and uh, it wouldn't survive the journey. We showed that in a follow-up paper. And then there was a third suggestion. Maybe it's a piece of an object that was ripped apart when it passed close to a star. And the problem with that is, first of all, passing close to a star is a rare event. But moreover, when uh, you get fragments from the disruption of an object by a star, uh, they are usually elongated, cigar-shaped, because of the tidal force from the star. And and they're not flat, disc-shaped, as required from the light curve of Oumuamua. So, you know, when I look at all these possibilities, I still advocate that an artificial origin uh, is uh, more likely. Uh, It seems quite um, reasonable to me. And uh, that's why I think that we should entertain that possibility. And the the moral of this story is that we should search in the sky for additional objects because it's very unlikely that this is the only one. You know, we just looked for a few years and we found stars and we found it. So there should be many more that we can find. And the next one that we find that looks peculiar like that, you know, we can study in much greater detail and figure out its nature. So there is a way of finding out the truth. It's not, uh, you know, up there, uh, you know, something that we will never know. And if we had been looking for things like a muamua, we would have been able to capture much more data about it when it was here for the time it was here, yes? And that's one of the missed opportunities that you're talking about because we're not looking. Yeah, because the community assumed that it's a rock, just like, you know, a caveman being presented with a cell phone would think that it must be a well-polished rock, you know, because that's the 
uh, experience that the, the caveman had throughout his life, you know, with rocks. So when astronomers see something in the sky the size of a football field, they say it's a rock, either coated with ice, in which case it's a, it's a comet, or, or without ice, in which case it's an asteroid. The problem is this object was sort of not that and not that. And, you know, and that, that was a mystery. And so why not put on the table the possibility that it's artificially made and, and just examine that as, you know, in the future when we detect more objects, ma- many of them might be natural, but every now and then we would uh, find a plastic bottle, you know, a, a message in a bottle. And I think it's worth, it, it's a completely different approach to finding evidence for other civilizations, because you can find the relics that they left behind, even if they are dead by now. Mm. And so from the time Oumuamua entered our solar system to the time it got uh, to its closest point of Earth, remind me how long, Avi, that was. Well, so it it takes it uh, more than 10,000 years to traverse the entire solar system, including the Oort cloud. But the time it spent in the vicinity of the Earth was only a few months. Uh, And out of those few months, we only looked at it for about uh, 11 days uh, with many telescopes and then a few more days after that. So it hung around Earth for a few months, even though we didn't notice it until the tail end of its journey, so to speak. Is that how I should think about it or how should I think of it? Um, it's like having a guest for dinner and then uh, recognizing that uh, that guest is interesting only when um, the guest leaves uh, through the front door into the dark street. <laughs> and by now, you know, we couldn't really chase it because it was moving faster than our rockets. And by now, it's about a million times fainter than when it was close to Earth. These objects dim very quickly because the amount of light that is intercepted by them from the sun is declining as uh, inversely with distance squared. And then uh, the amount of light that we see from them is also declining declining like inversely with distance squared. So altogether you get inver- a, a, a flux that goes like uh, one over the distance uh, to the fourth power. So they get dim very quickly. And if we ever wanted to chase, even if we had a spacecraft that moves much faster than Oumuamua, we would need to equip it with a telescope so that it can find it. That would be very challenging. There is no point in in doing that. I think our hopes should be at discovering more of the same. And uh, this may be an ignorant question, so please excuse me, but if the pursuit of a light sail craft is successful, as you described, is that the kind of thing that the next time we see an Oumuamua, we could fire one of these things at it and sort of yeah. Uh, chase it, or or, or am I uh, am I dreaming here? No, definitely, um, because um, you know, if we reach a fraction of the speed of light, it would be a thousand times faster than uh, Oumuamua was. Uh, we can in an instant reach it. Uh, Interesting. But we, we we don't even need to reach uh, a speed that is so high. We can just uh, reach a speed that is twice as large as Oumuamua, and then we'd be able to catch it. Yeah. And so uh, it was here for a few months. Yes. Mm-hmm. And does the data that you've been able to uncover have any suggestion or lead you to any possible insight, if not conclusion, as to what Oumuamua was doing while it was hanging around us? No, um, and that's unfortunate. Uh, it's a direct result of the fact that the astronomers 
assumed that it must be a rock and, and didn't really pay too much attention to it. And um, I can think of uh, a number of possibilities. If it's, you know, first of all, I should say all the suggestions to explain its properties out of a natural origin invoke uh, something that we have never seen before. Okay. And uh, no matter whether it's natural or artificial, it's something that we have never seen before. Therefore, understanding it would be for the benefit of science, even if it's natural. So we should definitely pay a lot of attention to the next one that looks like it. But what we want is to catch it when it's approaching us so that we can send a camera that will take a photograph of it. That would be very revealing. But also take uh, from, from Earth, uh, take the best data that we can about uh, its reflectance, um, color, and so forth, and, and light curve, and so forth. Now, um, uh, there was a second object discovered after that uh, called Borisov. It was discovered by an amateur astronomer named uh, Gen Gennady Borisov uh, from Russia. And uh, that one looked just like a comet. And uh, that, that was exactly what was expected. Um, and uh, when astronomers saw this object, they came to me and said, uh, look, uh, Borisov looks as we expected, as a natural comet, uh, doesn't that convince you that Oumuamua was also natural? And I said, you know, when I met uh, my wife on the first date, she looked special to me. The fact that I met a lot of women afterwards didn't change my opinion about my wife. She's still special to me. And the point is, you know, uh, these objects have nothing to do with each other. <laughs> Uh, I love the way your brain works. It's incredible. And so um, so we don't really know what Oumuamua was doing while she or he or it or they or whatever <laughs> were here, yes? Uh, no. Uh, there are various possibilities, you see. that it could, be, it could be even a surface layer of a spaceship that was ripped apart. It could be a dysfunctional uh, equipment, you know, something that was just tumbling because it's not, it stopped operating a while ago. It could be a probe that was sent to the inner part of the solar system to figure out what's going on there. Uh, or it could be, for example, part of a grid of objects uh, in interstellar space that are used for navigation or as relay stations for communication. Who knows? Uh, we need to collect data on, on more objects of the same and, and figure out their nature. Um, but I think it does open a window into a new uh, way of searching for extraterrestrial intelligence, which is looking at objects, physical objects, that is very that is not captured by the Drake equation, which which talks about radio communication. And to get a radio signal, you need the other civilization to be alive at the time of transmission. And to find those objects, you just need to know how many you have per star, you know, and what. What is their characteristic uh, number per unit volume so that you can then ask what's the chance of seeing one of them entering uh, the region where your telescope is sensitive to? And, and that's a completely different question. And, and also, in principle, you can put your hands around this thing and learn a lot from it, especially if such an object collides with the Earth. And just like meteors, you know, there are rocks that uh, fall from the sky and if they're big enough, they would survive uh, and they would land somewhere and you can study them. So if there is an interstellar meteor 
you could potentially check it out and put your hands around it. That would be very interesting. Does the fact that um, Oumuamua came and went, does that tell us anything about anything more about it? No, the way to think of it, if, if you go to this frame of reference, the local standard of rest, it was sitting still in that frame. And then the solar system came by and gave it a kick uh, and nudge through the gravitational force, sort of like a billiard ball that was kicked on a table. And that's pretty much it. Uh, doesn't tell you Because anything. one of the things I wondered was, mm-hmm. did it come here to check us out, take a look at us and go, holy shit, these people are insane. We're out of here. <laughs> no, no. I Well, first of all, I don't think that we deserve a visit. Uh, again, as a result of uh, this principle of modesty, I think that the, the form of life that we have here on Earth is probably quite common out there, you know, just like ants on a sidewalk. Uh, and I don't, you know, you don't pay attention to every ant when you walk down the street, right? Um, and um, I don't think that we are the smartest kid on the blog. We are not particularly noteworthy. And um, also, you know, it takes a long time for these travels. So as I said, it's, you know, 10,000 years just to traverse the old cloud within our solar system. So but, uh, at the time when this thing entered the solar system, you know, we were completely undeveloped. So for it to guess that we might be interesting 10,000 years later is, uh, you know, unreasonable. I just think, you know, advanced civilizations are not necessarily looking to find partners. You know, they, I call it um, social distancing on a cosmic scale. Um, They might build their own cocoon and not even worry about anything outside and inside they will have everything they need now that doesn't mean that we will never find what they're doing uh, inside because they always have to throw some trash and just like investigative journalists that go into the trash cans of uh, hollywood stars you know um and find out about something about their private lives we could find evidence for what they're doing from the trash that they throw hmm that's so fascinating so we're being socially distant by our aliens, uh, <laughs> aliens uh, throughout the galaxy. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if they think of us as, uh, as someone that can lower their, their standards of living if they were to come in contact with. Yes. Yes. Uh, we are not particularly smart. We are not particularly uh, developed. If you see what we are doing, it's most of the stuff we are doing is fighting with each other, wasting time and energy on disputes and uh, suspicions and rather than work together towards a better future which would be the intelligent thing to do there seems to be a severe lack of that (laughs) we 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 just had an author on professor named martin lindstrom who's uh, written a a new bestseller called the ministry of common sense and and the whole book is is about how we've sort of scaled stupidity (laughs) yeah and there's very little common sense that's Um, one reason why i uh, study uh, I search for intelligence in the sky because I can't find it very often on Earth. <laughs> uh, 
Now, there's been a, a bunch of reports over the last little while of other alien potential visits, Navy pilots, videos of them seeing things uh, while they're flying at night. Uh, some have even suggested that there are alien um, creatures of one sort or another on the planet right now. And so there's been a lot of talk about this and the government seems to have declassified some information. And so how do you sort of view what you've learned about Oumuamua in the context of some of these other things that are suggestive of other visitations of one sort or another? Well, first, I should say that, as I mentioned, out of modesty, I don't think that we are worth a visit. So I would be really surprised if that happens. But just like anything else in science, you know, we should rely on the evidence. Now, my approach is quite different. Uh, rather than digging into drawers that of classified material and trying to figure out what was measured in the past, I would advocate, you know, uh, studying those environments, uh, those sites where the reports came from, such as the ocean uh, near where the Nimitz was or places where pilots reported unusual activity and studying them with the modern, the most modern instruments, measurement instruments that we have in an open scientific investigation, you know, like not worrying about what these documents said, because that's completely irrelevant. Science is about reproducibility. You have to see the same thing again in order to believe it. So we will use the best instruments we have now. Forget about what was done a decade ago or two decades ago. Back then, instruments were not as sophisticated. And for a relatively modest amount of funding, we can go out and check it out, okay? So, you know, I, I'm not afraid of demons or of uh, uh, monsters or anything. Let's just use our instruments, go out and measure th what's going on, you know. And as a matter of national security, you want to know if it's not the Russians or the Chinese that are spying on us that have some special tech. So, I'm, you know, obviously there is some national security aspect to this, but uh, one can imagine a scientific experiment trying to figure out what these reports are all about because the pilots were not equipped with the best instruments you know and um, actually i mentioned this uh, on a podcast with joe rogan just a few days ago and um, yesterday there was uh, a, a, an initiative uh, by uh, that came from europe actually to raise funds up to the level of 50 million euros to support my proposal of of doing these experiments and checking. So maybe it will happen. We should see. Well, there's a bunch of billionaires in the world that are seem to be looking for things to do. And this is a pretty fascinating <laughs> area. That's a possibility. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to approach it just like any other scientific uh, experiment and figure out what's going on there. Now, from what you know about Oumuamua, what might it suggest, and if this is too speculative, tell me, what might it suggest about how much more evolved the beings that might have created it would be than us? Well, I think that we would be shocked, irrespective of what we find. You know, if even in terms of biology, just living uh, creatures, they would look very different than we are. You know, when we go on a date, on a blind date, um, it's quite reasonable to assume that the person you will meet would not look very different from you because you share the same genetic heritage. And uh, the only problem with life on another planet that was completely disconnected from us is 
it could have evolved very differently. You can start from the same soup of chemicals, but mix them differently and end up with a very differently looking creatures. Uh, and especially when you deal with stars that do not look like the sun, for example, the nearest star, Proxima Centauri, is 12% of the mass of the sun. It's a dwarf star, and its surface temperature is half of that of the sun. It's much cooler. So most of the radiation coming off it is in the infrared uh, compared to the visible light. So instead of the eyes that we develop here on Earth that are optimized to detect visible light, the eyes for a creature near Proxima Centauri would be infrared eyes, and they might look completely different. And I think we will be shocked when we look at life in another environment. The, but when dealing with technology, we would be even more shocked because our technologies are advancing on a, a few-year timescale. So imagine what they would look like a thousand years, a million years from now, a billion years from now. Uh, they would look like magic to us, an approximation to God. And uh, when we encounter that, we would be shocked. But it also is an opportunity for us to import these technologies. So uh, it might, you know, looking at the sky and searching for technological signatures might be a better investment than uh, going to, for example, Silicon Valley and developing these technologies. Yes. And as somebody who spent the bulk of my career uh, working in Silicon Valley, one of the questions I've also been curious to ask you is, if we accept the possibility that Oumuamua was an alien craft of some sort, how does that change the way we think about what's possible with technology? Well, we can learn multiple lessons from uh, identifying technological signatures of other civilizations. First of all, if they are dead by now, we can figure out why they died. If we see, for example, industrial pollution in the atmospheres of those planets, um, and we realize that there is no civilization out there, then you know it, it, it teaches us a lesson to get our act together about our climate and make, make sure we don't share the same fate. But um, also, it could promote uh, technologies that we are not aware of, you know, or understanding that I, if I were to meet an alien, uh, my question would be, is there a meaning to life? Uh, and my guess is that uh, there would be silence on the other side. <laughs> because there is, no, there is no meaning. Yes, I, I once heard, um, uh, life is empty and meaningless. And it's empty and meaningless that it's empty and meaningless. <laughs> well, I think there is, you can, okay, so any meaning that you assign to it would be temporary because, you know, if, all the meanings that we usually give to our life have to do with what we see on Earth right now. And, you know, within a billion years, the sun will boil off all the oceans and everything we care about will go away. So all these meanings will lose their validity. So they're temporary, irrespective of what you think of. Uh, but Beyond that, you know, I think that you can assign a meaning to your life by doing things that you enjoy, such as eating good food or trying to understand what nature is about. You know, that's a pleasure at a higher level, in my opinion, because good food is something that an animal can enjoy as well. But uh, understanding nature is something an animal doesn't do, you know. And so uh, the way I see it is uh, the reason to enjoy life is the ability to benefit from pleasures such as, you know, making your environment better by understanding it, uh, such as eating good food and 
you know, having friends and stuff like that. Yes, very much. Now, one of the things that I was um, surprised and delighted to discover about you, Professor, is your deep um, interest and commitment to philosophy, and in particular, existential philosophy. As a young man myself, I found it fascinating. And so the, another question I've been uh, fascinated to ask you is, if uh, Jean-Paul Sartre were sitting here with us right now, and you shared with him what you've shared with me, what might he say? I think he would be fascinated by that. I mean, he was studying the human experience here on Earth, but uh, what I'm trying to do is extend it beyond Earth and ask uh, in the bigger context, you know, can we change the way we behave by understanding that we are not alone? And um, what would it do to our, uh, for example, uh, aspirations? And I would love to have, would have loved to have a discussion with him about that and how the new perspective will change the way we behave. There is an interesting question. Would it lead to cooperation among nations? Because we are all the human species. We are one team when we face the universe outside Earth. And, you know, that's an interesting question. And um, it's not clear to me whether people will be sufficiently broad-minded to come together after life is found uh, elsewhere. Well, maybe we can go here. Um, I have been very saddened by um, humanity's response to this horrible virus. And there's a quote you might remember, and I'll paraphrase it. I won't get it 100% right. From Ronald Reagan, who apparently had quite the fascination with extraterrestrials. And I think he was making the comment in the context of the Cold War, where he said something along the lines of, if an alien was to attack from another uh, part of the universe or solar system, we would stop all this petty fighting and we would come together to protect ourselves from that alien. Yeah. And of course, now we know when an alien attacks humanity, um, we argue about masks and vaccines. <laughs> yeah, um, there is another aspect of COVID-19 that I would highlight. You know, so people, um, many scientists have a problem dealing with the search for technological signatures of other civilizations because they say there is this literature on science fiction that is not scientific. There are all these reports about unidentified flying objects that are not scientific. Therefore, we should shy away from this subject. Uh, and my reply to that is, uh, imagine that there was a lot of uh, wrong statements made about COVID-19. Uh, there was a whole literature saying nonsense you know about COVID-19 would that mean that the scientific community should not develop a vaccine using its standard me methods of study obviously not so science should focus on problems and apply the best tools that it has to resolve them irrespective of the nonsensical comments being made in other quarters of society that's my point and and therefore, especially if the public is so curious to know, are we alone, you know, and whether there are technological signatures out there and, and, and the public fund science, we should definitely follow this path. And through my book, I hope to change the current state of mind. And I hope to encourage the scientific community also to be more open-minded and uh, more balanced in its response to innovation, because the commercial sector already realized that blue sky research and ideas that are out of the box 
are quite valuable uh, for financial benefits. And it's strange that to find that the academic community is more hostile to innovation than the commercial community. Yes, it, it is quite um, it is quite fascinating. The other thing I, I have interpreted from reading your book and sort of consuming some of the other interviews and papers and so forth, and I'm no scientist, but it strikes me that there is a headset, a mindset in science that says, we can't declare that something is so until we prove that it is so. And the approach, and if this is not the way you want me to think about it, please educate me. But the approach you seem to have taken with Oumuamua is you seem to be saying, look, I can't prove that it was an alien visitor of some sort, but I can prove it wasn't anything else that we've ever seen before. And so um, if it wasn't, what, if, if we say that it potentially was, it opens us up to a line of investigation that we would not pursue. And so you're sort of purposely being provocative, taking a counter approach, saying, look, I can't tell you it wasn't, but I can I, I, I can or it was, but I can tell you it wasn't. And therefore, maybe it was. Uh, am I yeah. getting that the way you want me to? Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, I, I, I think it's a mistake to pretend that science uh, is uh, clear about its messages. Um, so science is work in progress. And most of the time, you just don't have enough evidence to be sure. And I think scientists, rather than close themselves in uh, ivory towers and, and come out to the public when they are sure about something, they should communicate to the public. And, and you know, the, the king, uh, the emperor, has no clothes, you know, and most of the time we just don't know what the answer is. And and when the public would see this process in the making as more and more evidence comes to support one possibility, just like a detective story, uh, then the public would believe the conclusions. But if the public is being lectured about the conclusion without seeing the process, I think it, it triggers some sense of uh, alienation. And just like students sitting in a class listening to the professor telling them what's the truth. I mean, it would be much more natural for the scientific community to communicate the process. And the reason I say that is because sometimes when public announcements are made after the scientific community converged on a result, sometimes it retracts the results. It turns out that it was wrong. And then it's very embarrassing. And there are many examples of that. And... Uh, so rather than get into this unnatural situation where you pretend that you know the truth and then realize, oh, no, I was wrong, let's just show how the scientific sausage is being made, you know. Well, and the impression I get from your book is that um, if you were found to be wrong and Oumuamua wasn't what you think it might be, mm -hmm. you'd be okay with that. That you're sort yeah. of, you are opening us up into, you say, look, I can't prove it, but I can't disprove it. That's right. Um, and so you are letting us into the process, even though the conclusion is not uh, final, so to speak. Exactly. And uh, I think you, you will gain the confidence of the public that indeed you are sincere and straightforward. So when next time when you have enough evidence, everyone would believe you. And uh, yes. I think that's the right way of communicating science, not pretending that it's something else. Amazing. Um, uh, uh, professor, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? I mean, clearly I could talk to you for uh, uh, days and days about this stuff, but I do want to be respectful of your time. Is there anything else? 
Well, uh, fundamentally, you know, all the labels that I have, everything that I did throughout my career, are just a reflection of uh, my curiosity as a child. And uh, I want the people who read the book to remember that I'm just a farm kid uh, telling them what I know without pretensions, without manipulating anyone. And uh, I want to continue this dialogue into the future. Professor, I want to thank you so much for writing a truly landmark book. And I will never be able to express my gratitude for your time today. And uh, you're always welcome back here. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. And uh, shalom. Later. Well, there he is, Professor Avi Loeb. And uh, if you didn't enjoy this conversation, uh, <laughs> I don't mean to be pejorative, but something's wrong with you. And if you know somebody uh, that has ever asked the question, are we alone? Why not send them this episode right now? Because uh, I think digging into Professor Loeb's work is a very important thing to do. Now, America is getting busy. And uh, to succeed in the new reality, businesses need every advantage they can get. And that's where Oracle by Net or NetSuite by Oracle comes in, the world's number one cloud business system, including finance, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and a lot more. With uh, NetSuite, you can manage your business down to the penny. So whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions in sales, NetSuite gives you the visibility and control that you need today to not just survive, but thrive. Check out netsuite.com slash different and set up your free product tour. That's netsuite.com slash different. And in challenging times, legendary organizations turn data into doing. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything, helping you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. That's splunk.com slash D to E and learn how you can turn data into doing too. My friends at Atronet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check them out, A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. And my friends at bottleneck.online are the leaders in providing uh, distant assistance. They've been physically distancing before it was a thing. And so if you need an assistant who's nowhere near you, check out bottleneck.online today. All right. We would like to thank Professor Avi Loeb of Harvard. What an extraordinary human being. His new book is out. It's called Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. Uh, run, don't walk to pick up your copy. This oddcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and I need to remind you that all rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that clearly this oddcast gets created in a studio that does contain nuts, and it tends to go better with libations, and it was never tested on aliens. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Technical Awesomeness and Lockhead.com are built by Jamie J and Sarah Knox. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Remember to watch Star Trek, the original Star Trek. Please take two podcasts and email us in the morning, blackhole at Lockhead.com. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Darth Vader. Sorry, Vader. We just ran out of time for you. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. We sure hope you stay safe, stay healthy, stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different. <laughs>